0: So we're continuing our sermon series about how we got the Bible. If you've been around the last couple of weeks, we studied two weeks ago how we got the Old Testament and then last week um, how we got the New Testament. And we were looking primarily at the internal evidence. uh, The the witness of the books themselves inside uh, what they had to say. But today we're going to start Um, part three, and then we'll have part four um, after after Thanksgiving. Um, But we're going to be looking more of, like, there are some books that were not included. And why weren't they included? And what is some of the external evidence for the Old and the New Testament as we have them? But I want to start off by looking at a passage. And if you want to, you can join me by opening up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verse fifteen. First Peter, Chapter three, and verse fifteen. First Peter, three, verse fifteen, it says there but sanctify or set apart the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a what? An answer, a defense, to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. We should not only enjoy the faith that we have, but we should be knowledgeable about this faith. And if our study leads us to a more perfect understanding, a better understanding, then we should be willing to change what we believe. Uh, But we should be ready to give an answer um, for the faith and the hope that we have within us. So if you don't like history, that's okay, but you're going to get a little bit more history today and as we finish out this series in a couple of weeks. I figured a sermon on the, uh, the New Testament apocrypha next week might not be what you're wanting to prepare you for the holidays. So we'll put that uh, after the holidays, part four. So you'll just have to wait for that one. So having looked at 1 Peter 3, I invite you to go in your Bibles to 1 Maccabees chapter 9. Now you're laughing because you got my joke, right? Now, I, mean, I don't know what Bible you brought with you today, and, and maybe you have Maccabees in your Bible and there's some interesting stuff in Maccabees, but today we're, we're asking the question, why were some of those books left out? Why were some of those books not included? So our sermon title is, How We Got the Bible, Banned Books, Part 1. Because often, I'd say if you see a, a documentary from the History Channel or every other year in the magazine rack as you're checking out of the grocery aisle. There's some new discovery, uh, books that have been hidden or kept secret or lost or banned. At least that's kind of how they're promoted. Um, and so it makes people wonder, well, why weren't those books included? Uh, and we've seen powerful internal testimony and even some historical outside-of-the-Bible testimony the last couple of weeks that we have a lot of Good confidence in what we have today as the Bible. Um, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament in broad strokes as as we have it today. He often quoted from it. The apostles recognized the Old Testament as Scripture, uh, doing it with a recognition that these books were authoritative. Uh, we also saw last week how Jesus gave the apostles authority, and their words had weight, and it mattered, and were authoritative to the church, and the church considered them to be so. In fact, even in the apostolic age, the days where the apostles were living, they started to recognize and quote one another as scripture. And then later on, I showed you last week, that there were early church fathers who, who looked back to the time of the apostles and said, Wow. We have the Holy Spirit, but they really had the Holy Spirit. And and the apostles, they really had authority. We're just regular people. And so the early church recognized the writings, the teachings of the apostles were not like their own. So we've hinted at some of these books, and we talked about how the popular idea of how Scripture came together, at least in some extreme views, is we picture guys with long beards, long robes, meeting in a, you know, a dark room, smoky room, and they've got a whole bunch of books, scrolls, and they, they pick and choose out of equal possibilities based on their own personal agenda, and that's what came to be our Bible. And we saw that that's, it's obviously uh, an exaggerated version uh, but one that people have come to believe sometimes through certain books or certain movies or way th- ways that things are portrayed. But we've seen that that's not how Scripture came to be. It didn't get its authority because a group of people voted and gave it authority. It got its authority because we believe God inspired people to write words down and that by the, the nature of, of the inspiration that was put into it and, and, and the process of it being inspired, that just because of what it is, it's inspired and has authority, whether or not people recognize it to be such. And so we saw gradually over time the Old Testament was recognized, Jesus recognized it, and then fairly early on the New Testament, the core books of the New Testament were recognized. But today we're looking at some of those so-called banned books. You may have heard the term Apocrypha. You heard that before? Or deuterocanonical, or non-canonical, or ecclesiastical, or pseudepigraphal. Basically, those are all words that we use to describe books that aren't in the Bible, that were written around that general time period. Uh, As Protestants, we just could generally call them all apocrypha, which basically means we don't treat them as inspired. We might find value and we might find them to be interesting, And it is pretty interesting. I'm going to share a couple of very interesting tidbits with you today and and even more so in part four. So they may be interesting, but we don't view them as being inspired. Now, if you belong to the Catholic Church, uh, a number of them, about seven, are included in the Catholic Bible. And the Orthodox Church has, I think, about 11 that they include in their Bibles. And they're called more like deuterocanonical or another canon. So, it's a part of their scriptures. Books like Tobit and Judith and Wisdom. Uh, Wisdom is a lot like Proverbs in many ways. Sirach, Baruch, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Uh, and then there's some additions to the books of Esther and Daniel, uh, books of Enoch and, and others. Now, when you hear the term pseudepigraphal, uh, have you heard this, the term pseudoscience? Yeah, a pseudoscience is something. It's not really a science, but people try and pass it off as a science. Unless I offend anyone, I'm not going to give any examples. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm tempted, but I'm not going to. So a pseudepigraphal book is one that is not really written by the author whose name is on it, like the Book of Enoch, not written by Enoch. It was written in like the second or third century B.C. Uh, The Gospel of Peter was not really written by Peter. Uh, In fact, Eusebius, and I'm going to put a, a quote up on the screen here, if I'm able to. Eusebius wrote this. He was an early Christian church historian. He lived in the 300s. He said, but those writings, which are falsely inscribed with their name, we as experienced persons reject. He said, no, 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 no. We know the difference between books that were written by the genuine apostle and those that just had... Uh, a pseudepigraphal title. We reject those books, he says. There's an interesting example of this uh, called the Acts of Paul. Not written by Paul. Um, It was more like fan fiction, uh, it turns out. But the, the early church elder, Tertullian, you've probably heard of him, some of you. He was born about 155 A.D., He heard that that church members were getting excited about the Acts of Paul. And they were using the Acts of Paul and referring to it as Scripture. And you recall that it was kind of a dynamic process because letters of of Paul and and the Gospels were being shared and copied and distributed. And so it took time for people to sort out what was authentic and what was not authentic. You know, you'd get a letter and, and then people would say, but wait, this is not what Paul taught us clearly when he was here. And so it took time to kind of sort through that. So Tertullian goes and investigates the acts of Paul. And he discovers it was written by an elder, longtime elder who was just a big fan of the Apostle Paul. He was so excited about Paul that he wrote some more stories about Paul. I remember in college I was hanging out with this guy. He was a huge Star Trek fan. And such a big fan that he, in fact, had written his own Star Trek episode. I read it. It was very interesting. But it wasn't a part of the canon of official Star Trek uh, stories. It was just fan fiction. And so, you know, it's not like when we're talking about the Apocrypha or these other books that they're all, like, written down by people just trying to trick us or be evil and maybe some people had bad motivations, some of the time people were just saying, hey, I wonder, wonder what happened in between these years, and let me write it down. Or maybe you've read some of these like stories that expand upon the story of David. And it's not really biblical, but it's not necessarily not biblical. Some of the time that's what happened. Although I think we'll see here, a lot of it is just plainly unscriptural. But in the Acts of Paul, Paul is on his way to a city one day, and he meets this massive lion. The lion is the size of a horse. And what was even more surprising is that the lion spoke to him and said, Hey, would you teach me? And Paul said, Sure. And the lion and and he did studies together for seven days. At the end of those seven days, Paul, being the good apostle that he was, baptized the lion because animals want to be saved too, according to... You know, the acts of Paul. And what was interesting was, later on in Ephesus, in the story, Paul is there, and he's sentenced to death. He's sentenced to go into a sort of colosseum where he has to fight against wild beasts. He's there, his heart is pounding, you would imagine, and out comes this massive lion. And he looks at the lion, and the lion looks back at him, and they recognize each other. And I don't know if the lion said, hey, aren't you the guy that baptized me, or the exact wording there, but they recognized one another, and the lion didn't kill Paul. Well, they release a whole bunch more beasts, and a crazy hailstorm happens, all the other beasts are killed by the hail, except Paul and the lion are spared. Not all of the apocryphal books are as far-fetched as that. And to be fair, people would say that some of the stories in the Bible sound equally far-fetched, uh, if we're honest. Uh, a lot of the apocryphal writings seem a lot more regular to life. So we got to ask the question, why were they not included? Uh, basically, I'll give you a simple answer, and then we'll launch into a little bit more complex of an answer. But essentially, it was important that books that were included in the Bible come from an authoritative source. And it took time for them to figure out if it was indeed written by an authority, such as a prophet, a priest, or um, in the New Testament, an apostle, etc., or a close associate of an apostle. But ones that were not authoritative were rejected. And that's why some of these pseudepigraphal writings pop up, because they knew If I just wrote that Jim Bob composed this, they're never going to accept it. So let's put an authoritative name on it. And some have suggested even the books written between the Old and the New Testament. Some of them, these fake named books, were written because they recognized the canon had already closed. So to get this in, I need to write it with a different name. So that's one thing, it had to come from an authority. And it also had to have content that was in harmony with what was previously revealed. If it didn't match up with what was clearly undisputed from God, then it, it wasn't a part of the canon. It wasn't a part of what God had revealed. So authorship and, and content were very important. But also, consequently, the time in which something was written became important. Because if it was written way after the fact, the the Apostle, way after the deaths of the Apostles, it couldn't be apostolic. And therefore couldn't be fully accepted. So we saw this a a little bit, but I just want to remind you that there was a growing recognition uh, before, like during the time of Artaxerxes or Nehemiah or like four centuries before Jesus, there was a growing recognition that that the prophets, the line of prophets inspired by God, had stopped. And therefore, the stuff that came after that time was not inspired, was not, um, didn't have that same level, that gift from God. The rabbis wrote about this, how the line of prophets stopped. God stopped communicating through prophets during that time. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian who wasn't a Christian but lived in the first century A.D., he wrote about this also. I'm going to put a quote here on the screen. Josephus here had this to say. From Artaxerxes, about four centuries B.C., approximately, to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records. So, yeah, there was stuff that was written, like Maccabees. has interesting history in it. But we don't deem it as equal to what was previously written. Because of the failure of the exact cessation, of succession of the prophets, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. Josephus said, no, man, it's done it's done. After Nehemiah, Artaxerxes' time, no. It's done. If stuff came after that, not of the same level. It may still be important and interesting to us, but it's not Bible. It's not scripture like we have it today. In fact, I have another one here from uh, Maccabees, one of the books that was written during this time period. First Maccabees, put it here on the screen. Great distress in Israel, such as when the prophets ceased to appear in Israel. They recognized, hey, we're living in this time period. This was about 150 B.C. when this was written. And they're remembering back when the prophets stopped appearing, stopped writing. Consequently, we could expect that the books that were written during this time period wouldn't have that mark of authority or inspiration. So anything that was written after that point, even though it may be useful, For us, we say it's not inspired. It's not a part of the Old Testament canon. So that's books like Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, extra parts of Esther, extra parts of Daniel, etc., etc., Book of Enoch, and so forth. Again, that's not to suggest that the early Christians didn't read these books and weren't familiar with them, uh, but they just... Uh, It would appear, for the most part, and again, it's hard to speak in absolute certainties here. We can speak um, and give general ideas, um, but there are always outliers. Um, In our church, we could do a survey and find a lot of different opinions on a lot of different subjects. But as you look at the whole and as you look at the way the trend was going, um, it seems as though they didn't tend to view them in the same way. Um, as the other undisputed books of the Old Testament. Now, some have pointed to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Massively important that showed that that the the Bible hadn't been changed significantly over the centuries. These scrolls that were written before the time of Christ. And some have pointed, they say, "Well, well, wait a minute, but weren't there some apocryphal writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls? And the answer is yes, there were a few of them. But what's interesting, and and it's fun to learn about this, there were a lot of books contained in these jars, along with these jars in those caves. Um, There were historic writings, legal texts, um, texts about the calendar, there was poetry that was included in there, exegetical writings for helping people study the Bible. Uh, There were special rules for their community because the Essenes, or whoever they were living there at Qumran, they were a sect. They were a special branch within Judaism. So they weren't even mainstream Judaism. But they had some some very unique and special rules. I'll read you one after I drink a little bit of my water. So this is a great one. Here's a rule. Whoever has gone naked in front of his companions without having been obliged to do so... To do so, he shall do penance for six months. It's unclear what the circumstances in which you'd be obliged to do so would be. But basically, don't be naked unless it's absolutely necessary in front of other people. Um, Here's another good one. Whoever has guffawed, or laughed boisterously, really loudly. Whoever has guffawed foolishly, he shall do penance for 30 days. Not as serious as unnecessary nakedness, but still, that's a pretty long time period. So don't laugh too loud in that community. Um, Or this one. Whoever has drawn out his left hand to gesticulate, to to make a gesture, with it shall do penance for ten days. Ten days. So, So don't Draw the left hand out and I haven't looked this up but I suspect it has to do with that being the unclean hand, the bathroom hand. Now you don't want that hand uh, being out there. And it, Sarah and I got to see in Israel some of these communal bathrooms and the process that you would use and yeah, keep that dirty hand away from the community. So what the point I'm making is there were a lot of things that were combined together stored together in those caves for safekeeping. But just because it was in the cave doesn't mean it was a part of the Old Testament. Right? I mean those may be useful rules for them back then but we don't have the same circumstances and and they were not inspired rules. In fact, and this is very interesting, there was a treasure map that was found in one of the caves. It was written on silver, I believe, detailing I think about 60 different treasures that were hidden. They've never been found, at least since people have started looking for them. They may have been found before that time, which is why we can't find them. But that was not an inspired treasure map. That was just people saying, hey, we need to get out of here. Let's hide this somewhere safe so it can be preserved for the future. So I've come to think of the Dead Sea Scrolls more as a library that was hidden away. Um, But what's amazing is they found every single book of the Old Testament there, uh, except for Esther, potentially. um, And there may be some good reasons for that. And it gave us great confidence in God's word. It's interesting, as you look at the quotations of Jesus from scripture, how many times did he quote from the Apocrypha? None. He quoted from Psalms, from from Deuteronomy, from a lot of different books. I think about 13 books. But he never quoted from any apocryphal source. The apostles never quoted the Apocrypha as scripture. If it was so important, they would have quoted from it. And there may be some allusions here or there because they were aware of it. Now there is, as, as we discussed when we studied Jude, there is a quote probably from the book of Enoch in Jude, but it's not introduced in the same way that traditional quotations from inspired writings are introduced. As you just scan through the pages of your Bible, you'll see time and time again, when the Old Testament is quoted, it will say, as it is written, as the prophet Jeremiah said, as David said, as it has been written, to fulfill the words of the prophet. But as Paul quoted the pagan Greek philosophers of his day and didn't say, as the inspired philosopher said, no, he just quoted it. So, just because something is quoted doesn't mean that it is, of itself, inspired. Now, some will ask, well, what about the Septuagint? Have you heard that, that word before? Or maybe in, your, in the notes of your Bible, the margin, you've seen the letters LXX. Roman numerals, what's an L stand for? I think it's 50, right? And then an X is what? 10, and then another X, so it would be what number? 70. So the word Septuagint is based off of the number 70, and there's some interesting history behind it, but the Septuagint was basically the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, But initially it was just the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Um, And then over time it seems as though they translated more and more of these ancient writings. And by the time you get to the fourth or fifth century, we have the earliest surviving copies of the Septuagint. Uh, Maybe you've heard about the different copies like the Alexandrinus or the Sinaiticus or the Vaticanus manuscripts. And they do have some apocryphal writings in them, but most of them don't agree on which one is in there. Uh, there, There's no two copies of the Septuagint that are the same in regards to the apocrypha. And it also is clear that it wasn't translated at the very beginning with all these books and then passed around as a as a book, as a unit together. It started off with the first five books, the undisputed books of the Old Testament. And then over time, different books were added and put together there. And by the time you get to... um, Well, this is interesting. Do you know when the official world church within Catholicism voted to accept the Apocrypha as scripture. You know what date that was? 1546. Uh, Now there were a couple of regional councils, uh, like in the fourth century, um, perhaps that had had voted on it, but as the world church, it wasn't voted until 1546. And it's impossible to know exactly what the motivations were, but many have, have looked at this and they have a pretty good guess. What happened in the beginning of the 1500s? The Protestant Reformation started. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we were celebrating Reformation Day. And one of the the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation was the Bible and the Bible only. And Martin Luther, one of his problems was that there were some practices that his own church was doing that he didn't view as scriptural. But if you look at some of the texts in the Apocrypha, some of the non-scriptural things from our Bible appear to be supported from some of the apocryphal writings. And so some have suggested, and and this may not be correct, but some have suggested that the way to have the Bible and the Bible only is if your Bible is a little bit bigger. Um, So it's interesting to to look into, and, and that may not be the case, but... The timing is certainly interesting. Let me give you a couple examples of some of the non-biblical practices. Because remember, authority was important, but then also the content. It couldn't disagree and teach new things that didn't line up with what had been previously revealed clearly. So in the book Tobit, we'll put this one on the screen, Tobit chapter 4, it says, give alms from your possessions and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you make it. Amen. That's good good stuff, right? Uh, Do not turn your face away from anyone who is poor, and the face of God will not be turned away from you. If you have many possessions, make your gift from them in proportion. If few, do not be afraid to give according to the little that you have. Again, a lot of good stuff that we can get behind. not saying that we shouldn't read these books or that there's no value, but it does get a little concerning on the next slide. It says, so you will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. For almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from going into the darkness. Indeed, almsgiving for all who practice it is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. So there seems to be kind of this idea that if you give, it's going to protect you from the future day. It will protect you from bad things, from Uh, ultimately being lost. And, of course, we know that that's not the case. Uh, What about in 2 Maccabees? It says, uh, this is in regards to they found some soldiers that had fallen dead. They discovered some idols on them and so forth. And it was believed that they were slain by God because of their sin. And it continues this conversation. It says, For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, because uh, the main character in the story uh, said some prayers for the deceased in the story. If he were not expecting that those who had fallen asleep would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. So they believed in the resurrection, uh, even before the time of Christ. Interesting example. Verse 45, But if he was looking up to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in goodness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. And there's where we say, hold on. Uh, that's not how it works. Our opportunity to make decisions and accept the, the atonement of Christ is now while we are alive. Amen? So you have to be careful of some of this stuff that, uh, that we see. And so people look at that and they say, well, there's a reason why this was not included in the Bible. Uh, because it wasn't coming from a prophet. It wasn't coming from someone already inspired by God. And therefore, it was easy for stuff like this to slip in. You also have in, in the books of wisdom things like the preexistence of the soul, uh, this, this split between soul and body, that comes from Plato and Greek philosophy. Uh, Therefore, the body is bad and the soul is good, which leads into some ideas that we'll talk about next time. And it's interesting, when you look at the earliest Christian list of the Old Testament, um, it basically is what we have today, and the Apocrypha is not included. Uh, And then there was Jerome, the great scholar, the great early church scholar that had a burden to translate the Bible into Latin, because um, the Romans had been in charge for a long time, and Latin was now becoming the more dominant language, and so he wanted to translate it into Latin. He started with with the Septuagint, but he said, no, 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 that's a translation. Let me go back to the original Hebrew. So he goes back to the original Hebrew and he does his work of translation, but when he produces the final manuscript, he did have the Apocrypha in there, but he put it in a separate category. A not inspired, but, but also interesting and helpful in some regards, category. It was different. It was separate from what uh, we had seen. So I'm going to pause us here in our discussion. I had originally planned to go into the New Testament. And we have a whole bunch of interesting things that we'll talk about with that. But I didn't want to put you to sleep. So we're going to pause it here, but I want to just ask a question. What have we learned today? Um, we've probably seen just a couple more reasons for why we have what we have and why we don't have certain things that were included. But a bigger and more important question is, well, why does any of this matter? Like, what difference does it make? Well, I can think of a couple reasons. As being people who want to be people of the book, we want to know, well, is this the right book? Is there another variation of this book that we should have? Are there reasons? And of course, we're not doing in this series like, you can trust the Bible because of these reasons. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We're, We're mostly coming already from the assumption that God is real and that God can reveal his will to us through the written word. And so we're asking in this series, well, did we get it right? Or should we make a change in what we consider as scripture? So, why does any of it matter? And I'd like to go to a, one or two Bible verses as we close. Uh, let's go first to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5 and verse 39. Why does it matter? Well, here's a great reason for why it matters John chapter 5 and verse 39. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who have not accepted him. They haven't recognized his authority. And he says this in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, again, implying that there was a set of scriptures that they recognized. They didn't say, well, well, wait, wait, Which, which set of books are we talking about here? Because there's so many and I'm so confused. You search the scriptures. this, this, This body of books that we all recognize. For in them, you think that you find life, eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. They were experts in the scriptures, but they weren't seeing Jesus. Jesus said, hey, I've come to tell you and reveal to you, this book is about me. So as a Christian, somebody who is trying to follow after Christ, if Jesus said that he's in the Old Testament, then we want to make sure we have the right Old Testament. Amen? And that's very similar to to our final verse, Luke 24, verse 27. Just back a few, several pages. Luke 24, verse 27 after the road to Emmaus experience, or um, as it's coming to a close. Let's start in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. How did they speak? How did they know the words? Well, they knew it through what had been recorded, the written word. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't that be an awesome Bible study? My friend said the same comment one day at church. Wouldn't it be nice to have a copy of that Bible study, a CD of that? Some saint came up to him afterwards and said, could I get a CD of the Bible study you mentioned? The one Jesus... didn't understand. We don't have a record of that study. But we wish we did. But Jesus went through the scriptures explaining how he was revealed in them. So why do we take time to look at some history and, and read some of these things? Because we want to know if we got the right scriptures, because we're looking not for knowledge, but for Jesus. Amen? So we'll pick this up in a couple of weeks, but let's bow our heads and thank God for giving us his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for another day. Um, It's a blessing to be gathered here together. And Lord, I'm, I'm glad that you chose to inspire people to write things down. Some of the things are confusing, and we're still trying to figure them out. But a lot of it is really clear. You love us. You died for us. You're offering us. Before the foundation of the world, you've offered us eternal life. And so today, again, we just say thank you. We want that to be ours now and forever. Guide us and direct us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a happy Sabbath. I hope to see you next week, but if I don't, I'll be looking at you through that camera lens. And those of you that are at home, we love you, we miss you, and we'll look forward to seeing you whenever we can. God bless.